0: Well, when we think about provision, God providing for us and giving to us what it is we need for those children to be able to have the wherewithal to be able to go to school and then learn about Christ. Um, Thank you, Cornerstone, for responding in faith. Uh, to that call, and praise the Lord for setting it on the hearts of his people uh, to care. What we see is that's a spirit that is true of the Lord uh, from time immemorial, going back to the Old Testament. He's a God who provides, and we see him provide again for his people, and specifically in a redemptive way as we look at Genesis chapter 24 together. Now, Uh, As you'll look on the bulletin before you, you'll notice we are looking at selected uh, scriptures from Genesis 24. There are 67 verses in Genesis 24. It's the longest single event in the book of Genesis. Uh, One of the reasons it's the longest single event is that everything that happens in verses 1 to 33 of this particular chapter is rehearsed again in the retelling of what happened as the servant will go to Rebecca's family. And so all of verses one through 33 is rehearsed again from 34 to 49. We're not gonna read those this morning. We're gonna leave that to your reading at another time. We're gonna simply read the one retelling uh, here in verses one to 33. And then we're gonna jump to the end verses 50 to 67. Let's look together at this wonderful word of God's provision, Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. The daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love. To my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, who was born of Bethiel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out from her water, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up, and then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, "'Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night?' She said to him, "'I am the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor.' She added, "'We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night.'" The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman." Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went out to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels." So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. And at this point, the servant begins to unfold everything which we just read in those first 33 verses about the Lord his promises and his providence and then it picks up in verse 50 Laban and Bethiel answered and said the thing has come from the Lord we cannot speak to you bad or good behold Rebekah is before you take her and go let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. They called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, Rebekah their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Berhal of Rahoy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening and he lifted up his eyes and he saw and behold there were camels coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes. When she saw Isaac she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man? walking in the field to meet us. The servant says, It is my master. So she took her veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what an amazing story we've just read. A story of your grace. A story of your provision. In a moment of certainly what it must have felt for Abraham, a moment of desperation. Of needing to see your provision. And needing to see the lineage preserved continued by your hand. Now Lord, as we come before you this day, we want a glimpse into the beauties of this story. We want to see how your character is on display. We want to rehearse the promises that are echoed within. And most of all, we want to trace this story to its fulfillment in the greater story of the gospel itself. That we might see Christ, the true bridegroom, in His love For us, the bride. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a real kindness of the Lord to lead us as we re-enter into Genesis 24, into this story from Psalm 139. Again, as I mentioned at the beginning of our service today, finishing up with that line last week, lead me in in the way everlasting. And we see God today, In this beautiful passage, leading his servant in what is certainly the way that is everlasting. Glorious to see God instruct us. And then in his faithfulness to demonstrate what that leading all looks like. It's a beautiful story. One of the great love stories of the Bible, rivaled maybe only by Ruth. Which is probably everyone's favorite, I would guess, in this room when it comes to love stories. But isn't it interesting? It's an arranged marriage. It's an arranged marriage. This woman, Rebecca, never had seen Isaac. Isaac had never seen this woman, Rebecca. And we're told by the end of this passage, he loved her. He took her into his mother's tent, was comforted after his mother's death. Sarah had just died in the previous chapter. And now, with his wife at his side, Rebecca, one that he had never known previously, he set in covenant his love upon her. And he was a husband who loved his wife. And here's what's interesting about that. It's the first time in all of the Bible where we read a husband loves his wife. Isn't that interesting? There's no courtship. There's no dating. There's no getting to know each other to see if they like each other. There's just commitment. There's covenant. And it tells us something about the nature of love. It tells us something about the nature of gospel love. And Paul writes about the love that God has for us as people. He says, in love, he predestined us. In love, he set his love upon us. When God speaks to the people of Israel about why he loves them, in several places in the the Old Testament, but specifically the book of Deuteronomy, he says to them, listen, I don't love you, Israel, because you're great. I don't love you because you are the wealthiest among us, you are the biggest, you are the most powerful, because you're none of those things. I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. I love you because I've set my love upon you. When we come to this story of the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca, there's something of that covenant love that's laced all the way through. And I think there's something probably in your heart as it is in mine that longs to be loved just because you're loved. Not because you're awesome. Because you're not awesome. And if you are awesome... Well, when people get to know you, they'll learn the real story. That you're not really that awesome. And that's when we're afraid of being rejected. In a story such as this, we see something of a gospel love. That no matter how much we often forsake the love of our Savior, He's one who's always holding on to us. You know, when we look at Genesis chapter 24... It should remind us of what we have seen going all the way back to the beginning of 2018 is the main focus of the book of Genesis. And it's this interest in the seed. It's this interest in the seed. Let me just remind you that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve had fallen, they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word of cursing and the word of promise comes forth from the lips of God. And he says to Adam, The seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. And there will be these two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and they're going to constantly fight against one another. They're going to be at war with each other. But one day, seed of the woman, you're going to be victorious. You're going to crush the head of the serpent. And then we turn right to the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, and what do we see? The two seeds duking it out. They come by the name Cain and Abel. Remember, Abel was one who had given a sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord had regard for that sacrifice, but for Cain's sacrifice, he had no regard. And the jealousy and the envy welled up in Cain, and what did he do? He killed his brother, You see the fight, the clash of Genesis 3.15 already playing itself out by Genesis 4. But just begin to read through Genesis with that in mind. Noah, did he have a few battles on his hands with the people of his day? Yes. Was he the godly seed that was set apart? The one remnant of faithfulness in his day? Yes. Abraham. In the midst of the earth, of the Chaldees, was he the one whom the Lord would use as a means by which to establish his covenant promises and unfold the pathway of redemption? Yes. All the way throughout, we've been seeing these two seeds. It's come to the place where we saw Isaac and Ishmael, uh, these two brothers, one that is the seed of the the woman and one that is the seed of the, the serpent, the rejected seed. Here we come to Genesis chapter 24. This Isaac, this promised one, who Abraham had groaned, had longed for him to come and believed he wouldn't come, comes to this point. He's about to close his eyes in death. And Abraham, as a last will and testament, says, I want to know that my son has a wife. Now why? Because he wants him to have children. He believes the promises of God in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Abraham, from you, I will bless. I will raise up a great nation. I will raise up a great people. And through your loins, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what Abraham believes. And as he's about to close his eyes in death, he wants to know. There's going to be a wife. And there's going to be a seed. It it teaches us about the nature of what the priority of the book of Genesis is really all about. This is not a story about how to find a godly wife. It's just not. Now, there are things that you can learn in this passage about how to find a godly wife. I, I might actually note a couple of those things as we go along. This is not a passage about how to find a godly wife. This is a passage about God preserving a godly seed. This is a passage about the redemption that God is winning and he is unfolding through the story of Genesis. You need to remember this when you read the Bible. The Bible is not primarily about you. The Bible is about God. It's about what God is doing. And what God is doing is really important to you. But you're not the subject matter. You're not the focus. God is the focus. We come to a passage like this and we don't simply think, Oh, that's a great way to learn how to find a wife. I really want a wife. I'm going to go try it. I need to get some camels. (laughs) No, this is not a method. This is a message. This is a message. This is a message of God's grace. With that in view, I want to simply reflect on this passage in three ways with you today and really see what I think is that theme, the greatness of God, In the securing for Isaac a wife and for the moving forward of a godly seed. I want you to see first Abraham and the promise of God. Abraham and the promise of God. Um, If you look at the opening um, words of Genesis chapter 24, you see something pretty unusual. It says this Put your hand under my thigh, as Abraham is speaking to his servant. Put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you'll not take a wife for my son Isaac from the women of Canaan, but will return to my homeland and choose a wife for Isaac from among my kindred. Now, I didn't look up when I was reading verse 2. But I imagined a few raised eyebrows when you heard, put your hand under my thigh. I think most of us would go, please do not put your hand under my thigh. Like, why would you request uh, this sort of thing? I mean, I think that's the natural reaction in the reading of the text. What in the world is going on here? When he says, put your hand under my thigh. Well, it tells us that Abraham is thinking according to exactly what I just described to you with regards to seed. In the ancient Near East... Though an unusual form of ritual, it's seen only twice in the scriptures. It's also seen in Genesis 49 with Jacob. When you have one who's about to die, and they're not, they can't see the legacy coming forward yet from, from their loins, and they're entrusting the future in a sense to someone other than themselves because they're about to pass and go the way of all the earth. The request to put your hand under my thigh is a way of saying, put your hand near the organ of procreation in order that you would promise to me you will care for me and my descendants. It's a way of saying your descendants are here. And as witness bearers, to the promise I'm making, the generations we don't yet know I'm covenanting with. It's an earthy example. It's a classic Old Testament earthly example. It's meant to say for us to really think in terms of the future. Abraham is going back to the promises of the word. He's going back to Genesis 12 and back to Genesis 15, probably back to Genesis 17 with the covenant of circumcision. Another very earthy symbol. That's meant to speak to us about the importance of a godly seed. He's asking his servant, Servant, I will likely not see the day in which my son Isaac is going to be married. I won't know my grandchildren and of whether or not this godly seed has come forth. I trust the promises of the Lord. So I am in a sense bestowing upon you the responsibility to carry the mantle of these covenant promises forward for my son Isaac. He's concerned. He wants him to have a godly wife. Now, why does he want just a a godly wife? And where do I get that he wants a a godly wife? It doesn't say that specifically. Well, he says, listen, not any woman will do. You can't just go find a woman out there in Canaan. In fact, I I want you to go all the way back to my kindred. I want you to go all the way back to, to where I'm from, the Ur of the Chaldees. And I want you to locate someone from my people... And bring her back here to be the wife of my son Isaac. Now you may hear that and think to yourself, it's pretty prejudicial of Abraham to dismiss all of the Canaanite women with one fell swoop of his tongue and say, there's no Canaanite woman that would be fit for my son. But I want you to again see that Abraham, remember the point, Abraham and the promises of God, Abraham is remembering the word of God. What you may have forgotten, and and I had to be reminded of again this week, was in Genesis chapter 9, in Noah's narrative. After the flood and the, the deluge has happened, the rebuilding has begun, Noah gives forth a prophecy that is a curse upon the bloodthirsty, violent man known as Canaan. Canaan, who was, surprise, surprise, the seed of Cain. The seed of the serpent. The Canaanites come from Canaan, all the way back from Genesis chapter 9. And it was there that this curse of God's presence be removed from Canaan and that judgment would be upon those people. Abraham here is saying, Listen, don't intermix with the women of Canaan, for they are under a curse. I believe in the promises of God. I'm trusting in what he's told me already through his prophet Noah. This is why later in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is actually going to command the people of Israel, don't intermarry with the Canaanites. Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. And you know what he says? If you do intermarry with the Canaanites, your sons will drift away from the Lord your God. They will begin to serve pagan idols. Friends, if we were to look ahead in the book of Joshua and Judges, you know what we'd begin to see? When the people of God begin to not forsake the commandments of God, they begin to drift from God. And the sons regularly, when there was intermarry with the Canaanites, begin to experience the consequences of their failure to follow what God had commanded through Moses. So don't, don't, don't read here, oh, Moses doesn't like their ethnicity. Moses doesn't like their customs or their mores. No, Moses is thinking spiritually. He's thinking about the blessed line that came through Seth. Remember, Seth was the son that was born of Adam and Eve as a replacement to Abel who had been killed by his, his brother Cain. Seth was the blessed line. We're told that it would be Seth's line that ultimately would be the one that would be served by Canaan, served by the people of Cain. It's, for, it's forecasting. It's looking ahead to these two lines that are running through the book of Genesis. Genesis. Isn't it interesting, just as a side note, that Abraham's emphasis here is completely on faith when it comes to focusing on a spouse for his son? It's completely focused on faith. Go back to my kindred, go back to my people. We want a wife who will commit to our God, who will obey the covenant of God who will pledge allegiance to our God? It's completely involved in faith. He doesn't say, "I want you to go seek out a woman who's got a really nice personality." It wouldn't help. It would help if she she looked appeasing as well, and um, you know, if you could give her a give her a personality test. If you give her a personality test and test compatibility, you you know you know how much Isaac enjoys college football. If she doesn't like college football. That's going to be a problem. And, you know, like, during hunting season, he you know, really likes to be in the woods. And be important that she, none of that dialogue is going on. You notice that? Now, 99% of the conversations we have about what makes a faithful marriage is in that realm. Which tells us what we really think important about marriage. What we really think important about marriage. You know what Abraham thinks is important? You know what God thinks is important about marriage? Are they committed to God? Are they a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives one instruction. There's one non-negotiable. If you marry, marry in the Lord. Now, now, lest you pull back from this and say, Nate doesn't think compatibility is important at all and personalities don't matter. Right? Lest you pull back and think that. I'm not saying that in the least. What I am saying is what's noteworthy is what God prioritizes as opposed to what we tend to prioritize. And I think here's the reason for it. Why is it that God prioritizes faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ above and beyond anything else with regards to a married life? It is because of this. When you are a Christian, the chief treasure of your life is Christ. If you're married to someone whose chief treasure in life is Christ, you know what that's going to do? That's going to shape all your values. It's going to shape your direction. It's going to shape your path. It's going to shape your commitments. It's going to shape the way you spend your money. It's going to shape the way you spend your time. It's going to shape the way you think the things you give your life to, or it should. Is that if Christ is your treasure, if God's covenant and his promises is your treasure, what it begins to do is actually form someone after the priorities that are Christ's priorities. And so the one thing Abraham says is go back to my people. And if she's willing to come back and commit to us, we know this is a woman who will believe in our covenant God and will serve and live with Isaac the days of her life. I summarize this point this way. Abraham is a man of faith, acting on faith, sending out his servant in faith to find a woman of faith to continue the line and legacy of faith. That's what he's doing. Now, it's one thing to believe these things. It's another thing to carry these things out. It's one thing to say on a Sunday morning, I believe that the Lord will provide. It's another thing to look at a negative number in your bank account on Monday. It's a completely different thing in terms of its experience. Now, those need to be brought into the closest possible relationship to one another. What you believe on Sunday and the negative bank account number on Monday. They need to be brought in relationship with each other. That's what we see actually happens in this text. We move from Abraham and the promise of God to the servant and the providence of God. To the servant and the providence of God. Now, look at this in in the text. It's really quite interesting. Nowhere in the whole text are we told the name of the servant. He's just servant. Now some have suggested that the servant who Abraham here is asked to place on his hand under his thigh and commit to go find Isaac a wife. Some have suggested that this is Eleazar of Damascus. You might put this reference down. Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. It's Eleazar of Damascus that is going to inherit Abraham's fortune and his inheritance if he doesn't have a son. You remember Abraham complaining at the beginning of Genesis? You promised me a son decades ago now and I don't have a son and the only one who is to get my estate is someone who's not my son, Eleazar of Damascus. Some have suggested that this is Eleazar of Damascus, this chief servant, the one who's in charge of everything. And it's a possibility. But we're not sure. We're not sure. Uh, In terms of who it actually is. But it's a very key figure in the text. In fact, some have argued that the main focus of this text is actually the servant. Even more than Abraham's faith. Even more in some ways than Rebecca and Isaac is the faith. And the carrying forward of this particular servant. One scholar this week that I read actually puts it this way. The servant is the quiet hero of the story in Genesis 24. And you can see why one would draw that conclusion because as he takes off with quite an entourage, 10 camels and servants and others along with him, he drives or rides 500 miles to Nahor, a long way. This is not a hop, skip, and a jump down the road. This is a long haul. Over what would probably be weeks of travel, he comes finally to Nahor and he pauses at the local watering hole. Not the pub, not the bar. He, he stops at the spring, which would have been the local watering hole. It was a, kind of the center of town in some ways. It was where people gathered. It was where social events would often take place. And it was strategic that he would be here because he tells us that women would come in the evening in order to gather water. And he's there on a, on a wife-hunting adventure. And as he arrives there, notice the instinct... Of this servant. He prays. He prays. Now he knows the task. He's got to find a wife. He embraces the promises. God has promised for a legacy of redemption to come forth from the loins of Abraham. How's he going to do it? That's really the question for most of our lives. How is this actually going to play out? I know in the end it's going to look like this, but what's tomorrow look like? What what does the next day look like? What about this big decision? How do we go at that? He starts with a prayer, the first prayer in all of Scripture, as a prayer for guidance. A prayer for guidance. The first prayer for guidance we see anywhere in the Bible comes from the lips of the servant of Abraham. And he prays, Lord... Make me successful. I want to do the task that I've covenanted to do, the oath that I've made with my master. Make this venture successful and remember, Lord, your steadfast love to Abraham. It's that old beautiful Hebrew word, hesed. It means a love that is continual and steadfast and never failing. Remember your never failing love to Abraham. Notice what he's doing. Lord, I've made a covenant, make me successful. Remember who you are and what you've promised to Abraham. Now, I'm going to come up with a bit of a plan just to help move this thing along. I'm not really sure if this is how you're going to operate or not, but I would ask it, Lord, if you'd be willing. There are thousands of women in, in, in this place. I don't know which one is the one. I, I'm going to come up with a plan. To begin to move forward, you steer me as, as we go. I'm going to sit here and the first woman who comes, I'm just going to ask her for some water. And I'm going to see if she gives me some water. And if she on her own initiative says, yes, and I'll water your camels also, that's going to be a big clue to me. That maybe this is the one that the Lord has chosen to be Isaac's wife. Now, as you hear that and you consider the plan, you might go, well, that's a little weird. It's a little odd. I mean, like, give me some water, water my camels. You're going to make a great wife. Like, I don't know how to compare those two or attach those two. But I do want you to see part of what he's building on here as he's going through this process of discernment. He's thinking in terms of a test of character. He's thinking in terms of a test of character. There's a number of significant things that are going on in this passage that I didn't even realize until digging a little bit deeper this week. But as he makes this request... I want you to think of the fact that he's a stranger. This woman would know him, would know him at all, wouldn't have any relationship with him. So it's a question of whether or not she'd be willing to serve a stranger, somebody somebody that she doesn't know, somebody she's not directly related to, to give time and and energy to him. But not just to give them a drink, but to go above and beyond the call of duty. To actually serve the camels who are also going to be thirsty after this 500-mile journey. Someone who would actually be industrious enough, and with, uh, have enough interest in others rather than in themselves to protect their time and energy, to give of their time and energy, and be willing to love and care for a stranger. He is, after all, going to find a wife for someone that this wife is not going to know. Very wise in his reflections. As he begins to think about it, and as I begin to uncover this week, begin to realize, wait, this is a really significant task. I think to myself, what, you know, giving a man a drink and watering some camels, that's no big deal. Well, it's a huge deal. Did you realize that the average camel who is thirsty can drink up to 20 to 25 gallons of water? That's a lot of water. There are 10 camels. That's a lot of time. Her jar, if it's of average size, it's between three and four gallons of water. What that means is for her to volunteer to serve this man in watering his camels, she's going down into the well and filling this jug somewhere between 60 and 80 times. Waiting for the camels. As she makes note, waters them until they're finished. That's the language of the text. This is an incredible sacrifice. If you begin to mark it out, this woman is spending an hour and a half or two hours watering this man's camels, who she doesn't know from Adam. No pun intended. She doesn't know him. It's actually, I must admit, as I read through it, it feels a little little eerie. It says in verse 20, So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all of his camels. And then verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Imagine this, hour and a half or two hours of watering your camels, the man just watches you. It's a little freaky. But his watching is one of those that is not in any kind of luring uh, way or inappropriate way it's to see whether or not this is the one that the Lord would have for for Isaac you know I'm thinking to myself she probably thought man this guy's a jerk he's not helping me he's not doing anything these jars are heavy do you catch any of that in the text though not one of it This is a woman who is willing to serve the interests of others more than her own interests. This is a woman who shows the makings of someone who could be a godly wife. This was a significant task. Now, I I said it earlier. I just, you know, it bears repeating. This is not a method for finding a wife. You know, single guys in here, you just, I got to give me some camels. And I got to find a spring. And, uh. And I got to pray this prayer. No, no, no. This is not the way it had. This is atypical uh, for the way in which the Lord works. But here's what's remarkable about it: is Here is a man who, knowing that he has a task that is godly, who trusts the promises of God, relies on the providence of God, gives himself over to the mission of God. And God in due time and with faithfulness and in surprising glory in this passage answers him on the spot. And that in of itself is an incredibly helpful point for us in this room. In fact, I just outlined those four things as I begin to think about the decisions that we face in life. You know, it's probably going to be true that most of your decisions in life aren't going to be a sign in the sky. They're not going to be written in the sand. Most of us are looking around, waiting for God to tell us what to do. When in fact, he says, I've given you my word. Act in faith. I will lead you. Act in faith. I will lead you. Don't sit back on your laurels. You know, that's not what the servant did here. He waited on the Lord for sure, but what did he have? He had a plan. He had a plan and acted in faith. Listen, if we believe on God's promises, if we rely on God's power, if we trust in God's providence... Then we're going to be ready when he comes through to rejoice in his provision. That's what the servant does here. That's what the servant does in this passage. At the end of where God provides, he actually brings Rebecca. It says even while he was praying, he's still speaking. He hasn't even finished praying yet. Rebecca shows up. She does all of these things. At the end of it, when she opens up her family's house, we've got fodder and we've got places for you to stay. Just hospitality galore. All of these things are happening. It says that he bowed down and he worshiped God. He bowed down and he worshiped God. He knew it was at the hand of the Lord. And he gave the Lord his due. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Now, years ago I wrote in my journal from Oswald Chambers that very well-known quote many of you will probably know where he just says oh, regarding divine guidance trust God and do the next thing. Do the next thing. It's very similar to what Augustine would write. Love God and do what you will. Give yourself over to his mission. Trust his path. Here's the great thing. If you step out in the wrong way, he's been known to course correct. He's been known to change your direction. Don't worry about it. Trust the Lord. Do the next thing. As the servant goes back to the house of Rebekah and tells everything that has happened Bethiel and Laban can't help but say, "Listen, this thing is of the Lord. <laughs> there's no, there's no other way. There's no other way to explain it. You probably have some moments like that in your life where you're looking back, things, you go. There's no way to explain this, but the Lord. There's no way to explain this, but the Lord." And they say, "Go take Rebekah, your wife. It is clearly this is of God's hand." And then, of course, they wake up the next morning. And they're like, "No, stay, stick around for a little bit. Stay here." Now you remember this is the Laban that Jacob will later have a little run-in with as he tries to marry the right woman and actually marries the wrong woman and then we have that whole thing. We'll get there. We'll get there. Laban's a little slippery. It's hard to say in the context of this passage whether or not specifically they're up to something here in the delay, but here's where the servant really is. Servant says, listen, God's provided. My master needs to know. I gotta hit the road. It's time to go. And they said, well, let's just ask Rebecca." And Rebecca says, I will go. Many of the scholars as they read this passage say this is the clearest commitment that we see anywhere in the course of this passage. It's the most definitive statement, I will go. The clarity of her commitment to say, I see God in this. I see his providence unfolding this and I'm willing to walk in this way. As she arrives there, in the land of Canaan and Isaac sees her away off, doesn't even probably know it's her. And she certainly doesn't know it's Isaac. She dismounts the camel when she sees that shadowy figure. And what does she immediately do? The text tells us she veils herself. In other words, she readies herself. She readies herself to be married. Shortest engagement in all of human history. She gets off the camel Isaac brings her into his mother's tent. He took her and married her. She became his wife and he loved her. He loved her. It's an incredible story. You know, one of the things that as you look over this passage that just is astonishing to you is the fact that God in his divine providence, no matter how good or bad the situations in our lives are, he is constantly moving us and scripting it towards just the appointed ends that he would have us to land in. You know, right where you are right now, I don't know where you are, but right where you are right now is right where the Lord would have you. If you're not where you know you should be, the the Lord is ready today to take you where it is that you ought to be. He's ready to do that. Like the servant, he may be calling you, Lord, make me prayerful today. Prayer for Lord, you lead me. You lead me, you guide me. I only want to be where it is that you would have me be. There's so many things we could point to, but it seems, well, it seems fitting at the end of this passage to just remember the fact that there's this theme in the Scripture. It's a theme of, of women and, and wells and marriage. What we see it, well, a number of places in the Scripture. And just actually a few pages from now, uh, we'll see it in the context of of Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 49. Where does Where does Jacob meet Rachel? Well, he meets her at a, at a well, and they they get married. We have Isaac and Rebecca. What happens? They meet at a well and they get married. Well, guess what happens in Exodus chapter two? Moses meets Zipporah at a well, and they get they get married. There's a thing. There's a thing going on here in the text of Scripture with women and wells and and marriage, which leads us. Uh, to this third and, and final point is it's not just about Abraham and his promises, and it's not just about the servant and the providence of God, but it's about Jesus and his commitment to the people of God. You see, that's exactly what happened in John 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well. You See, that's not by happen chance. Uh, that's divine providence. That's God taking His promises and applying it in time to even His own Savior. And as He meets the woman at the well, is she... Well, let's just ask the question, is she a good candidate for marriage? She's about the exact opposite of Rebecca. She's had five husbands, and the man that she's with right now is not even her husband. Isn't it interesting that the things they talk about Are the things relating to marriage? He asks about her husband. Where else does Jesus ask about a husband? Nowhere. But when you meet women at Wells, you talk about marriage. And marriage was the quickest way to get her to where it is she needed to be. She needed to come home to a new homeland. She needed to be married to the one man worth marrying. You see, in John chapter 4, we're learning Jesus was not after being married to the woman at the well. He was after a much bigger thing. He was after her becoming the bride that would marry the bridegroom. He was after her becoming part of the new Jerusalem that would come out of the heavens as Revelation chapter 20 depicts. He was after her by faith, trusting in the promises of God. Leading her to a place where she would become a worshiper of God and where she, along with the rest of us, would be married to Jesus forever. You see, the Bible really is only telling one story, isn't it? Over and over and over again. And the mystery and its profoundness and its glory just continues to deepen the further you go. And friends, in some ways right now in this room, the Lord is likely calling some of you into a relationship with him, maybe even for the first time. Or maybe you know you have been chasing after different grooms. It might not be physical grooms, it, it might be money, it might be power, it might be success, it might be approval, it might be all of the things that we tend to live for. And today, Christ is coming to you, woman at the well, man at the well. And he's saying, go find your husband. What is it you're really committed to? Well, I've been a serial commitment to adultery, to sexual pleasure, to security, whatever may have been that woman's motivation. And he says, today, in your hearing, I, the Messiah, am here. Come follow me. Come follow me. What is that for you? What is that for you? Believer in Christ, you you know all too well, even if you are one of his followers and commitments today, so were the people of Israel during the days of Hosea. (laughs) So were the people of Israel in the days of Hosea. And every single day, you and I go looking for other lovers. And God in his faithfulness continues to hold us fast and woo us back to himself. Who is he calling you back from? back from them to Him so that you might know the pleasure of being loved by the one who will never let you go who is that for you today Father in heaven we would ask that you would draw us away from the things that we've given our hearts to So that afresh this morning we would give our hearts to Christ. And we would find that he's the only lover of our soul that doesn't break our heart. He's the lover of our soul that will remain faithful when everything else is faithless. And ceases to satisfy. Father today by grace in every heart in this room. Do what only you can do. Until we are wholly yours. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.